0: Infants are gonna present with fevers, but if they may get past infancy without having urinary tract infections, they're unlikely to get UTIs during kind of those diaper-wearing years where they can't mention it. But then they're at risk again during the potty training years. When they're trying to figure out when to go, when not to go, no, I'm gonna hold this because I don't wanna go. All of that like bladder holding or urine holding can kind of increase the risk again for urinary tract infections.
1: Welcome to the Well Child Podcast, brought to you by two board-certified pediatricians, Dr. Anna Powell and Dr. Samira Arman, also known as the PD Pals, as we talk to you about topics involving raising well and happy children in today's challenging society. Please follow us on social media at the PD Pals or find us online at www.thepdpals.com. Hello, and welcome to a brand new episode of the Well Child podcast. Today, we are so super excited to welcome our guest, Dr. Elisa Acosta. Dr. Elisa Acosta is yet another one of our very close and personal friends, and uh, somewhat of an amazing physician. She specializes in nephrology, uh, also known as kidney specialty. Uh, Dr. Acosta has a resume that's 22 pages long, so if I were to go through her entire resume, it would take up the whole podcast episode. But needless to say, she has done the majority of her training and education in Texas, um, most specifically in Houston. She is, uh, she is also very academically oriented. She uh, has been program director, associate program director, won multiple teaching awards, um, is very actively involved in education. She's very interested in uh, high blood pressure and hypertension, and she has done an immense amount of research that pretty much nobody could really catch up with. So welcome, Dr. Uh, Acosta.
0: Thank you, thank you so much for having Yay. me on here. I'm truly excited to reunite with you guys and get together in this virtual space. Um, and thank you for that introduction. You always make me sound so much better than what I. <laughs> I feel
1: oh come you. on, that was like a attenuated version <laughs> of, of your accomplishments. Well,
2: uh, we she you are you have always been so inspirational and for our listeners just to know um, she was my program director so I learned everything from her especially everything about kidneys and nephrology so we've missed you and we're so glad that we could reconnect and you're the best you're the best no for doing you guys this. make me gush with pride I mean I really seeing what you guys are doing these days
0: and what you've become. Um, one I, it's no surprise to me but two i seriously like you make me gush with pride so no thank you
1: <laughs> i would also mention that she is a mother of three she has uh three girls two of whom are twins uh and her her children uh, she, we had children at the same time essentially and i just have to give the personal story of <laughs> uh we got pregnant with our first daughters at the same time and i'll never forget um, what how tall are you Elisa? I'm seven. Okay, she's she's 5'7". I'm 5'2 on a good day. And she had the cutest little belly bump uh, the whole nine months. And she would just prance around the pediatric hospital, like literally skipping. My five foot two habitus <laughs> gained 50 pounds of weight. I was like a beached whale. And I would just look at her and be like, what the heck? And she always made it look so effortless. And then I joked that she sneezed and then her baby came out. While I had like a very (laughs) terrible 30 hour labor the first time. And then the second time we got pregnant around the same time, both within a month of each other, right? Um, Ish. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, the second time she was, I could tell something was wrong. And, um, you know, we're good friends. And one time we were, we had done like a lecture or something like that. And then we were out in the parking lot of the hospital and she got so serious and she goes, I have something to tell you. And then I said, you're pregnant. And she goes, yeah. And then she goes, and and I said, it's twins. <laughs> and he just cried. <laughs> <up to cry. laughs> it's my favorite. I was just thinking about that the other day. Anyway, lo and behold, the twins are now how old? They
2: just turned eight.
1: Eight. Yeah. Oh my
2: goodness. Yeah. Good times.
1: So, so just
2: uh, your average super women, super that's women. what here. I was
1: gonna say. Just your average <laughs> super mom here. She's done it all with three kids, a doctor, husband, being as involved as she is. So I would definitely say that you, if parents are listening, this is the doctor to listen to. She's awesome. Mm-hmm. Well,
0: totally. thank you. I, I have to say, um doing all this, being a doctor mom during the pandemic has kind of shed new light on both roles and um has really, you know, energizes me for things because it's so funny um, because everything is so merged and blended now. And I've been doing, especially when the pandemic first hit, I was doing so much from home, not just clinic visits, but also teaching and meeting with residents and whatnot. <clears throat> and of course my kids would pop in every once in a while and see that. And um, and we will often talk about, you know, what do you want to be when you grow up? And we'll talk about, well, what was your, your dream job and mom did you always want to do that and stuff and they know that I was always actually between being a doctor or being a teacher um oh. and, and Marisol who is my oldest comes down the stairs one day she had like this epiphany as she goes it was like shortly after I had been in a meeting with one of the residents and she goes mom I just realized you have your dream job, and I was like, (laughs) "Is that?" And she goes, "You get to be both a doctor
2: and a teacher," and I was like, "That's right, buddy." So I was like, "How lucky am I?" So it's so great. That's amazing. I was just going to ask you that um, because we know so much about you and you know we idolize you and everything you've done. But tell our listeners, if you don't mind, kind of what brought you to pediatrics and nephrology because the teaching thing makes total sense to me because you are like a natural teacher. And that was part of something that I also dealt with when I was younger that I wanted to be a teacher, but I loved medicine. um, So that makes total sense for you. But yeah, tell our listeners A little bit about how you got here. Sure. So
0: I always joke that my mother brainwashed us to be a doctor. We don't have any doctors in our family, but my mother always, I think she just saw it as a very noble profession. And so.
1: Where's your mom uh, from? I'm sorry. Where's your mom
0: from? Just curious. (laughs) She's from Mexico. I mean, she was born in El Paso, but they're, yeah, they're Mexican. And so, so she, I mean, my brother and I both are doctors now, and we joke because it was like, Ask us what we were going to be when we grew up. She would jump in and be like, "Be a doctor. So They're going to be doctors." You know, um, you know. Obviously, that kind of thoughts. And then as I got older, of course, made my own decision for that and many different reasons why, I like being a doctor. Um, because, but I just I joke about that. But at the same time, she was a teacher, um, and I just loved learning and I loved everything about school. I loved school supplies. Um, that now uh, you know being a teacher was kind of what i wanted to do but I, as well it was something else i always thought of and i think at some point i want to say even in high school somebody pointed out to me that being a doctor you can also get to be a teacher in many different ways and so that like you know drew me to the field even more but i always learned i uh, loved learning about the body and learning how things work and learning like well how does you know this connect to that and how does that make work and so when I got to high school and started getting to do anatomy and physiology and all that, it just really energized me and and made me interested in it. But my other, um, passion and love is actually math. I love mathematics. I love problem solving. I love doing puzzles. I love, um, putting pieces together and seeing that they, how they fit and they work and, you know, trial and error. And okay, that didn't work. but This does. And so, um, I, I sometimes also think that maybe I should have been an engineer. I definitely think I should have majored in engineering in college, although I majored in math. And so fast forward, you know, several years when I'm in my fellowship for nephrology, I realized in my first six months how much math there was involved in nephrology and how much it was about kind of putting the pieces together. I can measure Uh, urine electrolytes. I can measure different components of the urine and the blood at the same time. And I can do my calculations and be like, okay, it's not coming from the kidney or it is coming from the kidney. And most likely it's coming from this part of the kidney Um, and and figuring it all out. And so I kind of joke sometimes that nephrologists are the engineers of the bodies that we get to put things together and figure things out. So so it became a, a perfect
1: fit. I would say that everything that Anna and I know about kidneys, we've learned from you. Mm-hmm. And uh, actually, sure. usually pediatric nephrology is a—it's a, it's a, it's a tough—it's a tough field. And so usually, when residents and all that are doing their board exams, that's a part where they score really low on. But we typically our program always did so well because of you, and you just have a really nice way of breaking things down and making it super simple and even though it's not <laughs> but um i still i mean i i can still hear your voice in my head <laughs> i remember the shorts <laughs> Yeah, yeah and sure I think it's... a lot
2: of people, <laughs> a lot of people in medicine don't realize how much math and calculations are involved um, in nephrology until you're actually there, um, because it seems like, you know, it's the plumbing of our body. You know, it seems like it would be um, straightforward to a person that's not in medicine, but it is really, really um, involved with calculations and mathematics, and, and I I don't think I can do it <laughs> definitely as well as you do so that's really really amazing yeah
1: we'll just stick to our strep throat for now (laughs) So, I do want to ask you a little bit I want our our learners and our uh, audience to also learn from you a lot so I want to kind of delve into the the main things that we wanted to talk about today and what we wanted parents to know leaving this episode and it mainly has to do with with urinary tract infections that's the most common thing that the parent of an average child will deal with over their lifetime. So a couple of things, um, you know, most of us know uh, about urinary tract infections. They can, uh, we call them urinary tract infections because they can happen anywhere along the urinary tract from your bladder all the way up to your kidney. Um, Do you mind kind of letting our audience know what signs and symptoms that they would need to look out for and how would they recognize a UTI in their child? Yeah, sure. Um, And so
0: first, you know, kind of breaking it down, the signs and symptoms kind of depend on the age of the child. And so we'll start with the easier, you know, a well potty trained child. So somebody that is continent has not been having accidents um, and can verbalize usually by that point, they can verbalize somewhat, um, you know, if they're hurting or if something just doesn't feel right. And so those are gonna be your classic symptoms of urinary tract infection that you most often think about. So the first most common sign that we talk about is dysuria and that's any kind of pain with your urination. They might say it burns, they might say it stings, it tickles, usually not tickles, but something just doesn't feel right. Um, And that's kind of the most common side sign, but there can be other causes of dysuria Um, So it's not always a urinary tract infection if that's what their symptom is. However, the more symptoms that they start to have, the more likely that it is a UTI. Um, Another common one that you'll see, again, a fully potty trained child might start having accidents again. Um, And that's a very common one that parents initially might say, what's going on? Maybe they got caught up and busy playing their video games or whatever it was with their activity and they had an accident. But if it happens... yeah, more than once, or if they are also complaining of dysuria at that time, then definitely I would think about a urinary tract infection. Um, another common one is urinary frequency. So they'll be running to the bathroom a lot and going, but not a whole lot of pee comes out when they go to sit down. Um, and that can also go, again, the, all signs of bladder irritation. So these are more UTIs that are really just kind of a cystitis or a bladder infection. Um, so there's dysuria, there's incontinence, there's urinary frequency, and then there's also, everybody talks about urinary hesitancy. You may have heard about that before, and that's when they go to the bathroom and they try to pee, but they can't pee. Um, and again, so miserable, (laughs) it's all bladder irritation. Um, that's just not letting it function the right way. Um, and those are the common symptoms of, again, a bladder infection or a cystitis that, If your child has all of those, especially, you'll probably wanna get them checked out sooner than later. Um, Because what you're trying to avoid or what we don't want to see is a fever. So again, in a fully potty trained child that hopefully can present with these signs, um, you'd be able to catch it sooner and you wouldn't get to the point of a fever. When a fever occurs, then we always get concerned that now the infection has traveled up to the kidneys and is evolving out a kidney infection or what's commonly known known as pylonephritis. Um, but that's when there's fever, then we're really worried that there's a more serious infection and you wanna get immediate attention. Now in children who are younger and either can't vocalize it, aren't fully potty trained, then it's gonna be really hard to um, detect that their urinary tract infections early. But in infants, um, so if they've made, if your child has made it through infancy without having a urinary tract infection, it's going to be very unlikely that they have one during kind of those, um, toddler years when they're maybe not potty trained and maybe not fully verbalized. Um, but in infants, um, <clears throat> the way that they will commonly present what the urinary tract infection is with fever. Um and so any infant that has a fever, unless there can be a good, reliable source found for the fever, they really at the at the very least should have a urinalysis
1: checked. Right, which brings me to a couple of other things. So, you know, parents really need to know that if you have the symptoms of a UTI, doctors will not treat you until they confirm that you have a UTI or urinary tract infection. So uh, if you go anywhere and you're getting care, and uh, you just say my five-year-old has been peeing a lot or saying it hurts when they pee and they just write you a prescription for antibiotics, that is not good care. You have to have a urine sample that's going to confirm whether or not you have the infection or not, because there's a lot of things that can mimic UTIs, and we have to be very careful about overuse of antibiotics. So when you get a urine sample we we do two slash three tests on them the first is a urine analysis or a ua as you just pointed out uh, sometimes we could do one in the clinic where we kind of do a, a little dip test and that gives us a, a quick idea of if there's pus or bacteria or sugar or blood in the urine um, but it is not a confirmation of the UTI, but it gives us an idea of if we're suspicious for it. And then we send the urine sample off for a culture, which takes a day or two to come back. And that confirms for us, whether or not um, the child has a urinary tract infection and requires antibiotics. And the cultures are so awesome. They'll even tell you what antibiotic is effective for the infection. Another thing I wanted to ask you to maybe explain to our listeners, we get so much pushback because if they're potty trained, we just collect the sample in a cup like you would with an adult. But if they're not, um, how do we have to collect the sample and why? (laughs) Yeah, no,
0: that's a good point. And I can't emphasize enough what you just went over about getting the urinalysis, but also sending that for our culture. Um, Because so many times, the, the message will be that the urinalysis, oh, you know, in the office at the time of the the submitting of the sample, oh, it was positive for an infection, so they started antibiotics. But that's impossible, honestly, for that analysis to be positive for an infection. It can be suggestive of an infection, Mm -hmm. it can be consistent with an infection, Mm -hmm. and certainly antibiotics can be started to start treating what seems to be an infection. But the, the confirmatory test, the test that really should be done as a urine culture to confirm that this truly was a urinary tract infection, what the organism was that caused the urinary tract infection. And then, like you said, the antibiotics that are best to treat it. And that's all very important information to have um, to know for sure, because if these symptoms continue to happen and there's never been a positive uh, culture to confirm that, then there's really a question of, well, then that were they really UTIs or was it something else that was going on? and yes, it's important to get the urinalysis um, and, it, and those children who are potty trained, we will do everything possible to collect that urine the, the normal way with them just sitting on the toilet and bo- waiting. But if the child is too young to void um, on on command or to just void in a cup, then when we're concerned about a urinary tract infection, really is honestly the best method to collect it is through a catheterized sample. Um, and that's a bladder catheterization. So it is uncomfortable for the child and the child will scream and cry, but usually you're screaming and crying because they're being held down and <laughs> you're invading their personal space more so than the actual catheter procedure, which of course is uncomfortable, but it's not as painful as the child might be um, exhibiting in their, um, in their behavior. But it's so important because there's so much kind of normal flora and other contaminants that live on our skin. That's just normal, but those contaminants can lead to false positives or they can actually uh, alter the results of a urinalysis. And again, if those grow with just normal contaminants, we're going to be stuck again, not knowing if this truly was a urinary tract infection or something else.
2: Yeah. What, What you just said is so important. And it's something that we deal with on a daily basis, you know, in the outpatient world, because a lot of times, I don't know if you've heard this, but a lot of parents will be like, you know, I had some burning when uh, peeing and I went to my doctor and they gave me antibiotics. And we really have to try to explain to parents that it works completely different for children. You know, their immune systems are still growing. Um, They can develop resistance to these antibiotics very quickly. And as Dr. Acosta, that will tell. You and all of us that have worked in the hospital, sometimes we've had to deal with really difficult um, to treat UTI. Sometimes, right? And um, I think that's the the biggest thing that you ladies hit on was that if we overuse them, then sometimes they won't work in the future when we really need them. Um, I also wanted to just uh, mention here that um, sometimes we'll uh, get, um, uh, sometimes your doctor might get a bag specimen, which is you know, uh, if, if you have a toddler and we just attach a bag to collect the urine if we're not able to get a catheter, the reason that bag specimen is is not so accurate is because we have bacteria from our skin um, that can sometimes contaminate it like you, like you touched upon. And then we don't know if that's coming from the actual urinary tract or from the skin. And so that's why I think what you said about the catheter being the most accurate is so important. Um, And and so I just wanted to mention that, but in in your experience, um, uh, you mentioned earlier about younger children, you know, if they haven't gotten it in their infancy or when they were younger, most likely they won't get it uh, as much when they're a toddler. But um, what types of conditions uh, cause children to get UTIs more when they're infants uh, or, you know, two, three, four months old? That's a great question
0: because infants typically aren't going to be at- at risk for getting urinary tract infections because they just pee whenever they have to pee. Um, there's no holding of the urine. There's no, you know, not drinking enough fluids or anything. It just flows. And so that decreases the risk. So infants that do get urinary tract infections are more likely to have had some kind of congenital abnormality that predisposes them and puts them at risk for having a urinary tract infection. And the most common of that is called, get ready, vesico reflux. Um, (laughs) Or
2: or just reflux, or just kidney reflux.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. We'll just say, you might see it abbreviated as VUR, or yeah, we'll oftentimes say urinary reflux or kidney reflux, um, because of course, there's also GI reflux that's pretty common in babies as well. But when we talk about kidney reflux or urinary reflux, that can predispose them to urinary tract infections. And those, again, will present with fever. And so, what that, what is reflux is that um, urine is supposed to flow one direction from the kidneys down the tubes that connect the, the kidneys to the bladders, which is called the ureters, and then from the bladder out the body through the urethra. Um, and so, reflux occurs. That's where that u- vesico ureteral comes from, is because that's the connection between the bladder and the ureter or the tube that drains the kidney. And if there is a um, just kind of a an abnormality there where it allows the urine to reflux back up to the kidneys, that then can put the child at risk for having urinary tract infections. Any pretty really anybody, it will put any person at risk, infant, child, adults. But it's a common congenital ab- anomaly that can happen with infants. And unless they've actually had um hydronephrosis or a dilatation in their kidney collecting system that was detected during pregnancy when mom was pregnant with the infant, then we won't know that the baby has that until they present with the urinary tract infection.
1: Right. And I think that's a really important point that um, you will find out if that, you know, I think parents would know, I like, would say, how would I know if my child has urinary or kidney reflux? Um, you would know because your baby's getting a lot of urinary tract infections. And so one thing to mention is that when babies have fever without a source. So when doctors see a baby and a baby has a fever, cough and congestion, they're like, hey, guess what? They have a upper respiratory infection or a cold or an ear infection, something like that. But if a baby comes to a clinic and they only have a fever, uh, gentle reminder, mm-hmm. a fever is 100.4 or more, uh, and we can't figure out where the fever is coming from, then oftentimes we'll think about, is it coming from their bladder? Because they can't tell us it hurts to pee or it's burning or they can't give you the signs. It's hard to know if they're peeing more or less than usual. So. Uh, we'll have to go looking to see. And I really want to emphasize this one point: doctors don't like to torture your children. <laughs> so many times, when we say that we have to do a catheter or specimen, we get so much pushback, and we don't like it. It's not—it's not our favorite thing to do at all. And I, what I always tell people is, they will forget; they won't remember this. It's not going to traumatize them for life. I've—I had a catheter placed when I was pregnant. And uh, so I know what I'm doing to someone when I'm doing it, right? And, uh, or when I was, you know, not pregnant, but delivering my baby. Um, And as you said, it's, it's not painful. It's uncomfortable for a really quick second. And then it's over. And the, the quicker you get it over with, like if parents could just be helpful and just hold down the baby real quick, so we could just do it. And it's like in and out and we're done. And then you can hold them. It's just like getting a shot really, And then you can hold them and comfort them and all that good stuff. But the more we drag it out, <laughs> the worse it is. So I do want to put that quick plug in there about fever without a source. And then our, um, not wanting to torture children because. I think oftentimes it seems like we're just, you know, wanting to, we're like, let's just do a catheter and it's not for ease or anything. It's just that that's, that's the way you have to do it.
0: Mm -hmm. No, I agree. And I thank you guys, you know, honestly, general pediatricians, I thank you for doing that because when I have an infant who's had multiple infections that finally gets referred to me, the, the biggest challenge is the, well, the, the biggest challenge is if they come to see me and they've never had a culture that's been done, <laughs> yeah. that's where it's really challenging to go. Mm-hmm, I don't know if these are infections. Um, one of the second biggest challenges is if all of their cultures have only been done by a bag specimen collection. Um, and, you know, I get it. I get that we don't, you know, we, the parents don't like to have their babies crying and they're already febrile. It's already been tough, but it is so important to get that calf culture um because that is the most specific way that's the way to truly know what infection they have and to know the organism that they're having and if they've had multiple then it's really important that we know what those sensitivities so what antibiotics that the the organism they have is um, gonna be effective against the urinary tract infection because having multiple infections increases their risk for building resistance to those um, Mm -hmm. common antibiotics Um, and, and so it's real important that we know which ones are still effective against it and it can change so even if they had an infection one month and the next month they get another one and you say but last month it was this and this worked it can change and what you don't want to do is miss the fact that the the sensitive the sensitivity of that bacteria has changed and now you're using the wrong antibiotic to treat cuz that fever oh. will go on that infection will go on and then that can actually prolonged infections or multiple infections can lead to kidney damage and scarring.
1: Um, And so so that's why
0: it's so important. Yeah. Yeah.
1: So important that basically we can't guess, just Mm -hmm. cannot, there's no way for a doctor to guess or know what's actually going on. And there is a way to know for sure. And this is it. Mm
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah. A lot of times, especially in the toddler, uh, uh, toddler ranges and, and correct me if I'm wrong, Sammy, as far as what you've seen, but a lot of the young girls that are just learning to get potty trained, a lot of times they'll come in with burning and irritation and inability to pee. Um, and a lot of times they can have this condition called vaginitis where they have irritation of the area, um, of that area, but their private area, and that can mimic a UTI. And so sometimes if we go ahead and treat that and we don't recognize it whether it is a UTI or not, we can actually make it worse because every time you take antibiotics, you can get a yeast infection potentially, you can get more irritation. So um, it, it takes a lot of time and reassurance sometimes to say, we know this is not going to be necessarily comfortable, but it's really important for us to distinguish what it truly is.
0: That's a great point. And you know, going back to what I had said about infants are going to present with fevers. Um, but if they make it past infancy without having urinary tract infections, they're unlikely to get UTIs during kind of those diaper wearing years where they can't mention it, but then they're at risk again during the potty training years when they're trying to figure out, um, when to go, when not to go, no, I'm going to hold this because I don't want to go all of that, like, um, bladder holding or urine holding can kind of increase the risk again for urinary tract infections and the reason why girls are so much more at risk of having the utis during those potty training years is because that the urethra that i mentioned so this is the tube that drains the bladder out to the body Um, the urethra is so much shorter in girls. And so it's so much easier for that bacteria, that normal, again, normal bacteria that live as they are on our skin can ascend and go up into the bladder and then cause infection. Um, And so those are the kind of the challenging years because if they do present with symptoms of a urinary tract infection, again, they can be something other than a UTI, but you really want to get that urine sample to get a good idea of, of what it is that's causing it.
1: Which is such an important point. I wanted to really touch on what can look like a bladder infection, but not be a bladder infection. Uh, So Anna touched quickly on an irritation of the vagina or even a penis. Um, So boys can have that too, where they're irritated uh, and there's a little rash or they're messing with it all the time. So that's one thing. You know, once we do a urine sample, we know that that's not what it is. We start to look at alternatives. There's something really common that we see. I'm actually curious if you see it too, Elisa, uh, just, or do we just spare you from that as general pediatricians? But we see a lot of something called dysfunctional voiding syndrome. Uh, you see that? Okay. So in a nutshell, I'm going to really simplify it. What happens is sometimes young kids Uh, forget how to pee right. (laughs) So they're either too busy, they're holding it all the time. Um, You know, they're not emptying their bladder when they go because they want to run back to their video game. And so what happens is they start to irritate over time, they start to irritate their bladder. And then they feel like they have to go all the time because they're not peeing right. And so when that happens, we have to teach our kids how to go to the bathroom properly all over again. And so the doctor will sit down with you and talk to you about, okay, they have to have scheduled potty breaks. They have to make sure they get every last dropout. And then the big thing, you got to make sure you're not constipated. I feel like all we talk about, you know, and I think parents look at us like we're crazy sometimes because they'll be talking. They're like, he's going to the bathroom all the time. He's peeing all the time. He says it hurts. And we're like, he's constipated. (laughs) They're like, no, 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 no. I was talking about their urine. (laughs) What are you talking about? And the truth is that those two things are connected. Uh, So in the stomach, there's some proximal, uh, proximal. Proximality, is that even a word? (laughs) Proximity. (laughs) Proximity. (laughs) There's some proximity the bowel and the bladder. And so kids who are constipated, lots of hard poop balls in their stomach, and then it starts to push on their bladder and makes them hard for them to go or empty out altogether. And then they act like they have a UTI when they don't, in fact, have a UTI. I don't know if you guys agree with me or what you think about the whole constipation thing in, in respect to all that.
0: Absolutely. No, you, you hit the nail on the head right there. Um, is that, you Except know, for we'll, the talk-
1: part. <laughs> <laughs> um,
0: I will see children with dysfunctional voiding as well. Um, oh, you do? Okay. A lot.
1: Okay. And,
0: um, and yeah, it's, it's very, I was so, you know, it's funny. I'm so grateful for that. Um, interpretation that I did as, I can't remember if I did it as a med student or I'm sure as a resident in GI, where I learned how to treat constipation really well. Nice. Little did I know (laughs) learning how to treat constipation so well was going to help me as a nephrologist in the future. Um, But it is so important. And it's also important, you know, again, oftentimes these children are young enough that they are going to the bathroom by themselves and so parents no longer have to monitor them or even have to go in and wipe anymore. Like those are the days like, yeah, I don't have to yeah. wipe a booty <laughs> anymore. <got> <laughs> <laughs> but, but now you have no idea really how your child's stools are. Yes. And um, and that's actually really important to know if they're having kind of frequent voiding and whatnot. Yes. Um, and so they can say, oh, yeah, they go to the bathroom every day. And I'm like, OK, great. Well. What's the poop like? You know, they yes. love this. I'm sure kids like. No, I don't <laughs> want to talk about my poop. And I always tell them, like, we get to talk about lots of fun things here. Yes. Um, but it's important to know that if they're having a bowel movement every day, so if they're pooping every day, what does it look like? Because if they're passing so hard stools, then that's constipation. Even though, even if they're pooping every day, they need to have really nice, soft stools. Every day, and then we can be assured that they're not having constipation. You
2: yeah, what we, ac- oh, sorry. Yeah. I was just going to say, do a shameless plug here because we just did a whole episode on constipation because (laughs) we did a whole podcast on it. And it's so, so important because it affects so many things. And a lot of the symptoms, uh, I don't know if we mentioned this earlier, but a lot of kids with UTIs might present with back pain or lower abdominal pain Or they have to go frequently, like you mentioned, when they're trying to go to the bathroom, which can be the same signs and symptoms of constipation, you know, they're trying to void and stool at the same time, and they're having a hard time because like, Sammy mentioned, the proximity of the, of the bowel and the bladder, um, makes the pushes on their bladder, you know? And so when you have stool that's pushing on the bladder, you can see why kids have to go to the bathroom and then they feel like they can't go and then they have to run back and then they try again. So it's so hard for parents to distinguish is this coming from a UTI or constipation. And like you guys both mentioned, a lot of times it's that constipation that's causing the problem. So,
1: and I want to mention right. one, one other big thing that I really want parents to think about, like I'm going to pause and really emphasize this point here. Are they finishing? <laughs> are they finishing peeing? And are they finishing pooping? Because mm-hmm. those two things will catch up with a child eventually. So they might be going every day, like Dr. Acosta said, they might be pooping every day. And sometimes it comes out as hard stools, or sometimes it even comes out soft enough, but they're rushed and they haven't finished That will Mm -hmm. catch up with you someday. Their appetite will go down. Their stomach will get distended. They start to act like their stomach hurts all the time. That's that's a type of constipation. And same thing with peeing. If they go pee and they don't finish, they don't really wait, especially boys. Boys have to take a long time to pee. I don't know if anyone's ever watched a grown man pee. (laughs) If you're married, you're like, whoa, (laughs) they're all Austin Powers. (laughs) (laughs) They just go and and then a couple of drops and a couple more drops. And that's just not how women go, but they have to do that. It takes a big effort to get their bladder to fully empty up. And if little boys are not taught this skill, it will catch up with them. And that's what we call dysfunctional voiding. I'm curious Mm -hmm. if you could tell our listeners, though, about how frequent uh, UTIs are in boys and if circumcision makes a difference.
0: Oh, that, that's a great question um so utis in again we're past infancy they're in the potty training years um and they have fully potty trained and incontinent um, um urinary tract infections in boys is extremely rare though it can still happen um it's rare but it can happen and those are the times when honestly um again, even in a a fully potty trained boy, I'll give them one pass for having a urinary tract infection. But if they have a second one, then for sure they get kind of a further workup with that. Um, In the Potty training years, like I talked about with the girls where they are more at risk for getting the UTIs, because, again, they're trying to learn how to make their they're basically dysfunctional voiders throughout the potty training years because they're trying to learn how to get their bladder to relax when they're supposed to pee, to hold on to it when they're not supposed to pee or if they're just going to be a defiant two year old and hold on to it anyway. Um, But even then, so because boys, their urethra, so again, the tube that drains the bladder goes through a much longer tract and goes through the penis, that risk of urine and, um, bacteria ascending up to the bladder is um, much lower. And so that's why they're at a much lower risk of having a urinary tract infection. So the the recommendation for boys is actually no, that circumcision is not required to prevent urinary tract infections. It is our, um, our academy's recommendation that you don't um, need to have a urinary tract infection. I mean, excuse me, you don't need to have a circumcision mm-hmm. to prevent urinary tract infections in boys. Rarely, rarely, rarely. And this is the point where usually when this recommendation comes, it actually comes from a urologist. So rarely, if there is a boy who is having more frequent urinary tract infections and we've done the full workup and can't find that they have urinary reflux or other cause for having infections, then they will say a circumcision may be of benefit for them and they will recommend a circumcision to prevent urinary tract infections. Rarely. And honestly, when it gets to that point, when a recommendation, I usually let that come from the urologist, because if I've seen them first and I've done all of my work, I'll send them to urology to see, you know, what their opinion is and what other kind of um, evaluations, because they do have a couple more tools than I do that they can evaluate for dysfunctional voiding and urinary tract infections.
2: Yeah, we, we talked a little bit about the signs and symptoms and how we treat and how we collect the specimen. But a lot of parents that struggle with their kids having UTIs, um, you know, regardless of the cause, whether it's reflux, whether it's constipation or or other reasons, um, the most common question I get is how do we prevent this? How do we, um, uh, what, what do we do to avoid uh, needing so many antibiotics or having UTIs? What are your top tips on 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 what you tell parents on how to prevent UTIs?
0: That's a great question. Um, And so if they are getting urinary tract infections, and again, all of the um, kind of congenital or structural anomalies have been ruled out, uh, then it's most likely dysfunctional voiding. Mm -hmm. So I really, really stress and emphasize all the things that we talked about already. So a time voiding schedule. Um, my, I've seen my urology colleagues put their patients on a every one hour void. like they. No, have like to can every you, you tell
1: everyone what the difference is between a nephrologist and a urologist? They might not know.
0: Oh, okay. So <laughs> I always say, nephrologists are more the medical doctors of the kidneys, and the urologists are more the plumbers <laughs> <laughs>
1: <Nice>. <laughs> So but
0: the, but the urologists are the surgeons. And so nice, they really nice. do um kind of, I assess and evaluate the anatomy and the structure more and the function of how the bladder works. I also do say that they're more of the bladder specialist than a nephrologist, because they will kind of look more at the plumbing of the, of the urinary tract system um, and they're the surgeons. And so if anything ever had to be surgically corrected or any procedure would be was indicated, the urologist is the one that would do that. A nephrologist, we are there, and especially in the setting of urinary tract infections, of course, we we kind of overlap and both manage both, but we're really here when I see my role in addition to trying to manage the urinary tract infections is trying to make sure um, and assess if there's been any effect on the kidney itself in regards to kidney damage. Is there any scarring there, any effect on the function and any resultant problem if there has been any damage or effect on the function. Um, so we do work very closely together and it's so great to have, a, you know, urology colleagues that again, when I get to the point of, I feel I've done everything I can for these recurrent urinary tract infections, then that's when I will say, let's get an opinion from the urologist. Um, and the same with going back to dysfunctional voiding, the same with the patients that I see for dysfunctional voiding. When I feel like I've done everything I think I can to address the dysfunctional voiding. That's when I say, why don't you see my urology colleagues? Um, because they actually, um, some several times, will have the ability to really put to put sensors on the perineum or on the area of the body where your pee comes out. There's muscles all over the place, and they can put little sensors there and watch a child pee and see what those muscles are doing when the child's peeing. Because you have normal bladder muscles that are supposed to do what they're supposed to do when you pee, which is relax and the bottom, let the pee come out and kind of contract otherwise to push the pee out. But then we have our external pelvic muscles that we also have to learn to control, to relax when we pee. And if those, again, with dysfunctional voiding, if they're squeezing those muscles while they're trying to get the pee out, then they're working against each other And that, again, can lead to kind of dysuria and urinary frequency and everything. And so going back to the original question, in those children that have recurrent urinary tract infections, most often the cause is dysfunctional voiding. And so I really emphasize um, going, I ask them to set a timer on their phone um, or on some other device for every two hours. And, And this is where it's really important, I think, to talk to the child because I know the parents know this and they're going to do this but oftentimes right it's the struggle and the battle with the child and so i have to i tell them you have got to go just go, stop what you're doing go to the bathroom every time that timer goes off every two hours
1: put down and the down. other person go to the bathroom <laughs> yes, exactly right
0: <laughs> the other part of that is double voiding though and yeah. so that is again and i tell them sit on the potty when you're finished peeing, wait just a second. You know, I've heard all sorts of different methods, sing happy birthday twice, sing the ABCs, whatever it is, pause and then try to pee again and see if you can't pee again, um, and then constipation. And if we've gotten to the point where we're having trouble with constipation, this is when I tell, I ask the parents that to, to really, they should hope, help to monitor the stool or the poop. And so, you know, it's a matter of not just asking your kid, Every day, hey, did you go to the bathroom? But if they're at home when they do it, or if they're around, to so really try to run in there before they flush it down to see what it looks like. And there's the the Bristol stool chart. If you, um <laughs> sure you know that. And I, I will oftentimes use that also as as a guide to be like, this is what your poop looks like. But again, in the classic description that I'm sure you all talked about with your constipation episode, should look like a pile of mashed potatoes,
1: or <laughs> I say applesauce. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Or Applesauce.
0: Mm, it's like if we don't want to do the food analogy, then it should come out like squeezing toothpaste out of a tube of toothpaste. Um, but it really should get soft. And again, you know, the treatment for constipation. And then drinking lots of water mm-hmm. is very important. It important. actually sounds kind of <laughs> It might sound counterintuitive because they're already going to the bathroom a lot and drinking water is going to make them go to the bathroom a lot, but it's going to give them a better sensation of having a full bladder and then emptying that full bladder and kind of again, retraining the bladder to be full and be empty. So it's real important, um, that they drink it throughout the day. And if they go to school, then, you know, your doctor's always happy to write a note to say they're being followed for, um, you know, X, Y, Z problem. They must go to the bathroom every two hours and they must have a water bottle with them at their side to drink throughout the day because a great tip you have that at school as well.
2: Yeah. I think that's an amazing point. I mean, water seems so simple, right? But it's so hard to do for most families because they're running around They're you know, guzzling juice sometimes and they just forget to drink. And what you said right there is so important because that bacteria, if it sits in the bladder too long, that's what makes them have more UTIs, right? Because that water isn't being flushed out. And so we got to flush out our kidneys and our bladder, right? So water,
1: water, water. So um, I thought that was a really good synopsis of what parents should look for with UTIs and whatnot. I have a fun little game just to switch it up. I have like a true or false if you guys want to play with me.
2: <laughs>
1: it's, um, I always you know, ask
2: her, what am I going to get if I win?
1: Yeah, yes. and I, I always say my respect. <laughs> so,
2: okay. Bragging rights.
1: Right, exactly. Okay, actually. Real quick, I wanted to ask you uh, th- if this is true or false. This is a, it's actually not on my list, but um, I'm curious myself. Is even a doctor if things have changed since we've trained bubble baths? Uh, can they lead to UTIs? Alisa? So you know, honestly,
0: I. Now that I think about it, have I ever looked up the evidence for this? It's not so much that the bubble bath is going to lead to the urinary tract infection as it can lead to more vulvovaginitis, right? Yes. Um, yes. And then that always causes the picture. And so when we are dealing with a child who's in current urinary tract infections, we're trying to eliminate all potential sources and po- possibilities and causes. And so that's an easy one to say no more bubble baths. I always feel so terrible for the kids, though, because they like to take bubble baths. So to be honest, What I say is a bubble bath's okay, but when they're done, you've got to make sure to wash out the area very well. Mm -hmm. Um, And so get the water in there. And I always tell the families and fathers, mothers, everybody, even the patients, I was like, you know, for girls, there's a lot of folds down there, right? There's a (laughs) lot of skin. (laughs) Like you got to flush that skin out. well. When you're getting your urine sample, this is another important thing. If you're doing a clean catch, so we're not going to do the catheter, um, and you're going in the bathroom with your child to do the clean catch. You've got to spread all those folds apart to the urethra exits right there in between all of that stuff. So it's real important that when you do the wipe, you wipe that um, that area where, very well. That's what we want to be wiped. And ideally, again, this is in a perfect world, your, uh, your vul- the vulva would be spread or all those little skin folds would be spread apart while the child pees. And would initially pee in the toilet, then pee in the cup, then pee in the toilet. That's the mid-catch or the midstream urinary catch. But but to be honest, half the time we're just happy to get a urine sample Anything. from the kids. And so I don't even go through all that in the younger kids. But I do try to emphasize real important that you Try to get between those folds and clean really well, if you remember when changing their diapers and stuff. I
1: also recommend that they, if they are frequent bubble bath takers, um, be careful what the bubbles are. Uh, Just make sure that it's like a no bath bombs, no, nothing with too many chemicals and whatnot. But also uh, try to have them pee as soon as they're done. Because if any water trailed up their urethra in that bubble bath, then you kind of flush it out if you pee right after. Yeah, Yeah, totally.
2: Especially for when we think it's vaginitis. Um, I usually talk to them about wearing, you know, looser cotton underwear. Um, a lot of times kids will go to the pool and then not wipe. And so sometimes the pool water irritates that area in addition to the bubble baths, like you mentioned, and then teaching girls how to wipe. As well, you know, after they go to the bathroom, um, wiping from front to back. Uh, as a lot of times they pull in bacteria from, um, you know, if they go the other way, and uh, could potentially cause that as well. So, all right.
1: And so back to the
0: pool. I was just going to say really quickly, going back to swimming and you know running around on wet bathing suit, running around that wet bathing suit, especially when mm-hmm. it's hot outside. Yeah. Again, kind of. Opens up the opportunity for having the the yeast infections essentially that can occur yes. down even in the in the younger children.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Definitely. Yes, you do not have to be a grown person to have a yeast infection in your vaginal area. That's for sure. All right, myth or fact number one, you decide. Uh, to prevent a UTI, clean your vagina with soap and water.
0: <laughs> False. <laughs> False.
1: <laughs> Whew, so just, not that one. Uh, so just to let our listeners know um try not to actually get too vigorous with cleaning your vagina with soap and water it doesn't help prevent utis and it can throw off the ph balance in your uh, vagina and the bacterial balances so no douching and no aggressive washing of that area
0: and i have to make a point because i will say i know a grown woman who was pregnant And didn't realize that she peed from a different hole than the baby was going to come out. So we are talking a lot about vaginas and a lot about vaginitis and whatnot. But it's only because the area that the pee comes out. So I've talked about the urethra. The opening for that urethra is very closely located to the vagina in the the female anatomy. um, But they are different channels (laughs) that happen. Mm -hmm. So even more reason why douching and trying to wash your vagina is not going to make any difference for your urinary tract infections. Just a matter of keeping that whole area clean. Again, the perineum is that whole area, just kind of keeping it clean. Great
1: exactly. point. All right. Myth or fact number two, if your urine is cloudy or has a strange odor, then you must have a UTI. Ooh. False. Yeah.
2: False. <laughs> false. Not must, Right. Right.
1: Uh, I love this one because I think this is a really big misconception that a lot of times parents think that if the urine looks cloudy or if the urine has a strong odor, then there, there's there got to be a UTI. Actually, a lot of times just has to do with hydration. So uh, the only way to know, as we've mentioned a million times, is to get a sample and run some tests on it. But it does not necessarily mean they have a UTI.
0: Yeah, it does. And it's a great point. It's probably hydration, and it may even be something they ate. You know, the classic thing that everybody knows about is asparagus Yeah, changes the... the- The smell of your pee. And so asparagus can do that, but so can other um, foods or medications or vitamins. Mm -hmm. Um, And you throw in a concentrated urine with that. So again, if you're not drinking enough water, you're not going to pee as much. And your kidneys, the smart organ that they are, are doing what they need to do. So they're trying to hold on to as much water as possible for the body and only letting out very little. So then those odors become even more concentrated and can look cloudy like that. So yeah, excellent point. Mm -hmm.
1: I actually love what you said about vitamins. That's really true. And I don't think people think about that because there's a lot of vitamins being consumed nowadays. So I love that one. All right. Fact, truth or false. Uh, drinking cranberry juice can prevent or treat a UTI. False. So. <laughs> false so false again. Yes. Yeah, yes. There, yeah. there is no evidence that it does. I still tell people it's okay to do it uh, because we know that... that Cranberry juice have certain chemicals um, or, or compounds, I should say, that inhibit bacteria from sticking to walls. So we, we do know that. But we're, we don't have really the evidence that it can prevent or treat a UTI. We just haven't been able to capture that in a study. So uh, like a really good study. Um, so I think, you know, it's OK to try it, but don't expect any miracles. I don't know if you guys agree with yeah. me on that one. Sure. Yeah. Certainly
0: it's not useful for treatment of a urinary tract infection. Um, And I kind of feel the same as you. It's most likely not going to be harmful if they want to drink it to try to prevent urinary tract infections, except that it depends on the cranberry juice that they drink. And you got to watch out for the sugar content because you don't want them. Again, I'm pushing fluids, right? So it's an additional fluid that would be great. But I don't want if a child's already overweight or obese for them to drink a bunch of sugar now to try to prevent urinary tract infections, because that actually might be more harmful for them. But in general, a glass a day is probably not going to hurt.
1: We actually in my household make a homemade cranberry juice recipe. So I'm going to share that recipe on the day that we air your podcast. Awesome. Yeah.
2: (laughs) Yeah, because real cranberry juice is very sour. And most of the most of the ones we get at the store are so sugary. So you have to be very careful uh, for them to just be guzzling down juice, right?
1: So that was it on the true and false. Yeah. I loved it. Good job. (laughs) (laughs) Those were great pearls, but before,
2: I mean, we could talk to you for days and days and days, and we always learn so much every time we talk to you, but um, before we, you know, end our episode, which I'm so sad about any last minute pearls or a few things that you want parents to know, or, I mean, we covered a lot. We did cover a lot. And I think, you know, honestly, hit on my big things is really it's that dysfunctional
0: voiding. I think, you know, this is a great forum because yeah. I do feel like it gives us a chance to the, the things I feel like I say to individual patients all the time, um, and, you know, now can be, um, at once kind of shared, but that I would say is the treatment that is very challenging because I mean, we've all got busy lives and your kids are just as happy as can be, whether they're, you know, as I tell my children all the time, melting their brains, playing their video games on whatever device that they may find versus outside actually playing, you know, outside, whether it's, bas- you know, riding a bike or playing basketball or whatever. But to take that pause to go to the bathroom, it can be, you know, so challenging, but it's so important to have them do that. It's so important to have them drink their water throughout the day and to treat the constipation and to watch for that. Cause that really will kind of help to kind of clear up all of these Um symptoms that they might have.
1: Bottom line, don't hold it. Yes. Right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's the reason why we all say that. (laughs) Right. Well, thank you so, so much for being a guest today. I hope you will come back and visit us sometime in the future. It was wonderful to catch up with you. And I know that our listeners learned a ton today. So thanks officially and very much, sincerely. Well, thank you. It was
0: truly my honor. I loved hanging out with you guys again. This is great. I'd be happy to come back again.
1: The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of any other agency, hospital, organization, employer, or company. Assumptions made in the analysis are not reflective of the position of any entity other than the participants. The participants are critically thinking human beings. Therefore, these views are always subject to change, revision, reconsideration, and recalculation at any time. This podcast collaboration makes no warranties or representations as to accuracy, completeness, correctness, suitability, or validity of any information, communication, exchange, and the participants will not be liable for any errors, omissions, or delays in this information, or any losses, injuries, or damages arising from its broadcast dissemination or use. All information is provided on an as-is basis. It is the communication recipient's responsibility to verify any fact.